Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, we're actually starting a new series uh, for the next five weeks, um, a l- little bit of a kind of like vision-ish series. The idea being kind of at the start of the year, uh, let's kick off the year with some particular things that I feel uh, led by the Lord to preach on, um, to kind of set the foundations of who we are as a church before we jump back into the Gospel of Matthew, um, which we're going to be going through. Um, this year, most of this year, will be spent um, in the Gospel of Matthew. And I've en- entitled this series, We Are, um, and basically trying to think about who we are as a church. And as I prayed and, and was thinking about this for months, I think the Lord led me to um, basically five things that I wanted to focus on at the beginning of our year. Um, And so we're going to have a a series uh, that we are a grace-filled church, a gifted church, where we look at the role of the Holy Spirit and gifts and the charismatic um, element, a generous church, a holy church, a prayerful church, and then there'll be one more bonus one uh, where Pastor Dave Taylor from our uh, sending church will come in and he'll preach um, and I'm hoping he'll preach on a family church or fellowship, that element that where we're not just coming to a service, but we are the church. We're bodies. We're members of one another. So today we're going to jump into our first one, a grace-filled church. Uh, you may have noticed our church is called Sovereign Grace. So grace is something that uh, we you know, try and make central in what we do and who we are. But today I want to really unpack what does it mean to be a grace filled church, a church which is permeated by grace, a church where the atmosphere of who we are and how we live and uh, the culture is marked by God's grace to us. So would you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, as we begin. We'll jump around a little bit today, but this will be the main kind of text I'm going to open up for us. And then I'm going to read John 1, 14. Exodus 34, verse 5 says this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When I joined Sovereign Grace, um, oh, Eight years ago or so, or eight and a half years ago, the first time my wife and I visited, um, we entered a church at Normanhurst Boys High School, uh, Southern Grace Church, Warunga had just been planted two years, about two years prior, and we entered a church where the atmosphere sort of felt different, the, the culture, the environment of the church um, was exceedingly joyful, um, there was celebration as, as we were singing, people were raising their hands, people were calling out, people were clapping, atmosphere of joy. 
And eventually when we joined the church, um, we became members and we started serving. Then we would, we'd come from being pretty um, key leaders in the church that we were a part of. And then we joined and um, Maddie had just had Evie and so she wasn't serving. But I was on once a, every six weeks or something doing setup. But I'd be carrying out these, you know, boxes and things like that. And people would be stopping me and saying, thank you so much for coming to serve. I was like, okay. And I'd go on with my task. And afterwards, people kept on thanking me. And I'm like, this is so weird. Because I'd, I'd done so much serving in church before with, with, you know, not like absence of thanks, but not really that much thanks at all. And I'm like, I'm just moving some boxes. It's not that big of a deal. And then as I started to get more um, involved in uh, the life of the church, in, in the leadership of the church, um, experiencing Dave Taylor and the way that he led, um, his instinct is always to lean in with encouragement and love and grace and mercy. In fact, when we would gather for leadership meetings, um, the first thing we would do for about an hour or so is just sit around and talk about all the great things that God's been doing in the church and in people's lives. Often when you're in leadership, you kind of straight go, all right, how are we going to, what are the problems, how are we going to solve them? But before we even went there, there was this sense of like, no, God's at work. We don't want to skip over all the good things that God has done and just focus on the problems. Even the first sermon that I heard when I came to Sovereign Grace was a guy called Mike Pasolich preaching. It was like the only time he ever preached. Um, But he preached on giving and he preached on money and he preached on this grace-saturated, generous view of giving where we give not because we have to, but because we get to. We give because God has given to us. And, And I was thinking, man, I've never heard sort of, I don't even know if I'd heard a sermon on giving, let alone one that was dripping with the realities of the gospel. And yet, it's so often that it's not the case in our lives or in churches that grace is the default atmosphere. I know for me, it's so quickly just, I just forget it. And and I go towards demanding, I go towards performance or critique or cynicism. And so often we can be the type of people that assume the goodness of the gospel, assume the grace of God, And we lose it as a distinctive characteristic of who we are. We can even think that if we are too gracious, people will take advantage of it. So we'd be strict and unrelenting. Or if we're too encouraging, people will become proud. You know, if you thank people too much or encourage them or show them where God's at work in their life, they'll become proud. So... We make sure we add in lots of criticism and cynicism just to keep them humble. That's a good Australian thing to do. We think that if we're too generous and grace-filled with our giving and our money, that we will run out of it ourselves. And so we become miserly and, and stingy at heart. Too often our tendency as, even as followers of Christ, even as humans, as sinners, is to limit grace in our lives because grace is risky. Being a grace-filled person, a gracious person, a generous person, a giving person, encouraging person is costly. It takes effort and energy. It runs against the grain of our human nature. Because grace is undeserved. Grace is costly. Grace is extravagant. And so as a church, as we begin this year, if there's one sort of overarching culture or principle that I'd love for us to continue in because I believe by God's grace we are a grace-filled church already. I would like it to be something that we don't assume or that we don't just, yeah, yeah, we're gracious, that's who we are. 
but it's something that we intentionally go after as a church, that we would be a grace-filled people. Why is that? Well, we are to be a grace-filled people because we are children of a gracious God. This isn't just a sovereign grace distinctive. This isn't just something we like because of our personality or it's, you know, it feels nice and it's sentimental. We want to be a grace-filled people. We want the intentional culture of our church to be marked by grace because of who our God is. Three points for us today as we unpack this idea that we are to be a grace-filled people because we're children of a gracious God. Three points. Point number one, a gracious God. Point number two, you don't have to get these down now, a grace-filled mind. And point number three, a grace-filled life. So let's jump in. Point number one, a gracious God. You see, it's such a vital category for who we are as followers of Jesus, as, as Christians, as worshippers of Almighty God, that we be grace filled, not, as I said, because of our personality or it's just nice or sentimental, but because it strikes at the core of who God himself is. If someone were to ask you, who is God and what is he like, while you're on the train this week or at work or one of your kids perhaps or a friend or a neighbor, what would your instinctive answer be? Who is God? And what is he like? So often our instinctive answer could be something good and true about God. He's holy, he's righteous, he's, he's the creator, he's worthy of all praise and worship, he's, he's king, he's sovereign. But when we turn to the overwhelming message of scripture about who God is and his very essence and nature, in fact, who God wants himself to be known as, not just what the Bible says about him, but what God says about himself, we see that God reveals himself as a gracious God. That's who God is in his core being. There's a famous story in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. After the Israelites had been freed from Egypt, they'd been um, set apart, they're, they're on their way to the promised land, uh, and God had spoken to Moses, given him the Ten Commandments. But at that time, they totally disobeyed. They made all these idols, sinned against God in a devastating and horrific way. Moses comes down from the mountain to deliver the Ten Commandments to them, which the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me and do not make an idol. There they are with their idols. Throws the commandments down. They smash. And the people are in wailing. They're, they're fearful. Moses returns to God and God says, I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you into Israel. You're going on your own. I'm departing from you because you're sinful and unclean. And often that's our main picture of God, perhaps, depending on your you know, background and perspective. Yep, that, that fits. God, angry. We sin. We get smacked down. One little sin, just a little golden calf, and now we don't have God anymore. And Moses pleads to God. and says, God, no, no, no. We're not going unless you come with us. And then Moses approaches God and he says to God, one thing I'm asked, Lord, show me your glory. That's Exodus 33, 18. Show me your glory. Don't let us go without your glory. 
And then God replies curiously in verse 19, and he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So Moses wants God to go with him, and he wants to be assured that God is actually for them and with them, and he wants to see a visible display that God is with them by God revealing his glory to them again. And God chooses not to really visually show Moses his glory. He says, you can't see my face, you'll die, turn, I'll show you my back, I'll cover you over. But what he says is, I will proclaim my name to you. I will proclaim my name. Because God's essence of his glory is intrinsically tied to who he is and his character, his personhood. So when God says, I'll show you my name, he's really saying, I'll show you the best thing about me, who I am in my being and essence, rather than a visual spectacle, rather than showing you know, the heavens and the eternities. When, he, when God wants to show his glory, he reveals his name. So the day comes, Moses goes back down the mountain, he comes back up the next day, um, he goes alone, he goes um, ready, um, he's got two stone tablets for God to give him the Ten Commandments again, and then this story happens, where God reveals his glory. In verse 5, in Exodus 34, again, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that is with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals his name, his very personhood. And we would expect in this frightful moment where the Israelites have sinned against God, he's incensed against them, he's promised he's not going to go with them anymore, that his revelation of his name would be terrifying and awesome, holy and majestic, (laughs) angry and judgmental. And yet instead, even in the sin of the Israelites, even in one of their worst moments in all their history, and they had a bad history, (laughs) what does God say about who he is? What is his glory? What is intrinsically beautiful about God? Well, he says, I'm a God, merciful and gracious. The first two things, the most instinctive things about God's nature that he wants to demonstrate to Moses and the covenant people of Israel and by implication to us, is that he is a merciful and gracious God. Those two terms refer to God's undeserved kindness given to his people. Mercy, where you relent from judgment that should have been coming, punishment that should have been coming, grace and undeserved gift to people who cannot say, you know, hey, we're due this. It's a complete gift. Not only that, he's a God who is slow to anger. So much linked to his mercy and grace is that it takes him a long time to choose to be 
angry. He's a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This means he's not stingy with his love. It's not like, oh, all right, oh, come on, God, let's, let's love him today. And he has to give himself into the gear and get ready to love. He's, he's abounding in it. it. It's just, it's the reflex. It's what comes out of God is love and love and love and love and love. He keeps his steadfast love for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is. This passage is fundamental to the revelation of God in the Old Testament. It is quoted dozens of times by the psalmist, by the prophets. It's quoted and the, the same phrases are used multiple times. The exact same quote is used multiple times in the Psalms and in the New Testament. When we think of who God is most fundamentally, this is him. This is who God wants you to think God is. Whatever other images you have of God, may this be the first and most prominent and uh, the, the, the clearest image, the reflexive image. When you think of God, think merciful and gracious. When you think of God, think abounding in steadfast love and forgiving, uh, forgiveness. That's who he is. Now, of course, that's not the whole phrase. He mentions at the end of verse 7 um, that he's not a divine, cuddly teddy bear. Um, he says that he will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But God does not just merely look over our evil. He, he, he's not just always like cuddly and nice and just loves everyone universally. His love is directed to those who repent and trust in him. His mercy is for anyone who comes to him and seeks it. It's not automatically applied to all people. But even in his justice, and even in his anger and his judgment, notice the difference. Love to a thousand generations, judgment to the third and fourth. All the terms that describe his intrinsic nature multiply seven different terms about who God is as gracious versus one kind of almost after point about his judgment on the sinners. In Lamentations 3, even when Israel has sinned again and they've been exiled from the promised land, God says this to them. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Notice that same term again. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He does not afflict from his heart. In Ezekiel 18.23, he says, the Lord says to Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Dane Ortland, who wrote a fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and divine mercy is slow to build. But it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. This is who our God is. And this is the Old Testament God, the famous angry Old Testament God. His very nature is mercy and grace. 
And then as we come through the rest of Revelation and and we get to Jesus Christ coming in the very form of God. When Moses couldn't see God face to face, God comes in the flesh as Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. And how is he described? Turn in John 1, chapter, uh, yeah, yeah, John 1, verse 14. Not 1 John, don't do that. John 1, verse 14. This is how John describes Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Notice the same kind of term to Exodus 34. Show me your glory. We've seen his glory. What is his glory? Well, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And what is that glory? Full of grace and truth. And the verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. It's exactly what happens next in Exodus 34. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Not even Moses didn't really see him, even in that moment. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. We have this symmetry in the Old and the New Testament. God does not change. He is one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he is gracious. He loves to bring grace. He loves to overflow with mercy and kindness. Even the Holy Spirit is referred to twice in the Scriptures as the Spirit of grace. Peter says of God that he is the God of all grace. And the last words recorded in Scripture in Revelation 22, 21 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Is this how you see God? When you want to describe God, when you want to think of God, when you've sinned or when you come to church or when you're singing or when you're out and about, when you're in nature, when you're doing things, is this who you believe God to be? Well, the Lord wants you to know that this is who he is. This is not all that he is. He's more than gracious and merciful. He's manifold in his attributes and character, holy and just and righteous and magnificent. But at his core of his being, he wants us to know that he is gracious. Grace-filled God. He's a God of sovereign grace. In control of all things, so that he can give grace to those that he loves. As followers of this God, as worshippers of this God, though, we are not called just to receive this grace. We're not just recipients of his mercy. We're not just to know that God is gracious. But as his children, we are called to become grace-filled people just like God. We're actually called to become gracious like he is. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul commends the Ephesian Christians and says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to be grace-filled people because we're children of a gracious God. So how do we become like God in this? 
How do we be and continue to be, or if you're not yet a grace-filled person, how do we become a grace-filled church? Well, my next two points are going to try and apply this a little bit more practically. But in a sentence, we cannot live grace-filled lives until we have grace-filled minds. How do we become a grace-filled church? Well, we cannot live grace-filled lives until we have grace-filled minds. It leads me to point number two, a grace-filled mind. Being a type of person who is marked by grace, who if someone had to define you, you'd say, oh, they are a gracious person. They are a grace-filled person. It's not a personality trait. It's not like some people are born this way, though in some people's temperaments they are easier (laughs) than others. It comes about just like any other virtue in the Christian life. We have to put off the old self, renew our mind, and put on the new self. None of this happens automatically or by accident. If we're going to be a type of people who imitate our gracious God and become grace-filled people, then we need to pursue it. We need to make it our intentional aim to do that. And so the first kind of step in, in doing that is we need to renew our minds. We, obviously, we have to put off the old self. But first, in this kind of context, I think we need to renew our minds and fill our minds with God's grace. If we don't have the graciousness of God and the mercy of God and all of His grace constantly refreshing the streams of our mind, it starts to get stagnant. Our views of God change, our views of people change, our views of this world change, the views of ourselves change. And so God's means of grace to us to actually change who we are, to be gracious, beautiful, joyful, thankful, kind, merciful, generous people, is through changing our mind. And so I want to commend to you a number of ways in which we ought to refill or fill our minds with grace. Firstly, review point number one. That's why I preached that whole section on the graciousness of God. The first way to fill our minds and renew our minds is to refresh our mind with the reality of who God actually is. So easily we forget and we think, uh, be imitators of God. Okay, I must be more stern. No, be imitators of God. He's gracious and merciful. Make your mental picture of God warm and generous and joyful and loving. I mean, he created flowers, <laughs> uh, beautiful smells and sights and senses. That's our God. That's who he is. He's an artist. He's a creator. He's a lover. Review and refresh your minds with the reality of who he is. Secondly, review your story. Fill your minds with the realities of God's saving grace to you. You realize the greater sinner you recognize that you are, the greater the grace of God seems to you. If you are forgetting or not reviewing just how sorry your state is before God outside of Christ, The grace of God will be small. You're like, well, yeah, I did get a little bit angry in the car this week. I'm glad Jesus died for my sins, I guess. But when you review your story and you review your very nature of your life and you realize, oh my goodness, 
I don't just do selfish things. I'm a selfish person. My instinct is selfishness. Oh, and then you start to realize that Jesus had to die for that selfishness and that he set you free from that selfishness. And, and you start to review your story again. Suddenly, the grace of God becomes the best news you could ever hear. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Titus 3 to, um, to help us not be grace amnesiacs. Or, you know, Because every morning we sort of wake up an unbeliever again and we need to remind ourselves that this is our story, Titus 3. This is you and I. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See how all those themes from Exodus are playing out in the gospel story? His kindness and goodness, his grace, his mercy, his compassion that was shared through his son's blood, unto us. Every morning we're waking up unbelievers, gospel amnesiacs, and we need to remind ourselves, I was going to hell, eternal separation from God, and yet he plucked me out, not because of anything intrinsically good in me, but because of his mercy and grace, and set his love upon me, and changed my entire eternity and destiny gave me his Holy Spirit, wiped me clean of all my sins, and now gives me the opportunity to know him, the greatest good in all the universe. That is God's saving grace. And we ought to refresh our minds in that daily, if not twice daily or thrice daily or whatever the fourth thing is, all the time. Thirdly, review his grace to you, not just in who he is, not just in what he's done, but review his grace to you in the present time. Review his common grace, the beautiful land that we live in, the, the, the street that you have, the house that you have, the job that you have, the people that you are around, the food, the culture, all the benefits of living in Australia. They are evidences of God's common grace to you. And there are so many evidences of his common grace. Review his sustaining grace to you right now. Right now, he is upholding your breath. He is giving you life and being, and you are only here because of his mercy and grace. You only made it to church this morning because of his grace. You only have any affection for the Lord right now because of his grace to you. If he were to withhold his grace from you, you would hate him today. You would have no hope, and you would be wanting to give away everything about Christianity. But that wasn't the case for you this morning, or at least I hope it wasn't, because of his grace to sustain you. Review his empowering grace. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Any way in which you served anyone at any point in your life is God's grace to you. He empowered you to do it. 
He empowered you to love. He empowered you to care. He empowered you to lay down your time, your money, your energy and sacrifice. That was him. Left to yourself, if God removed all of his grace from you, you would be a horrible, terrible, selfish person. (laughs) I know it because that's where my heart goes. And review his forgiving grace to you, even as you sin as a Christian. Not just in the past, but in the present when you actively sin against God. You can draw near to the throne of grace and receive grace to help in your time of need. We need to refresh our minds with who God is, with our story, with his present grace, and even with anticipating the grace that will come to us in the future, past, present, future. God will give you the grace you need to undergo any trial or any temptation that comes to you in 2021. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. No matter what you're afraid of, no matter what you think may come, he will give you grace because he has promised it. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then the grace upon grace that will come to us at the future. We need to refresh our minds with this truth, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to set our hope. We need to refresh our minds with the reality that one day the heavens will be parted. The Lord Jesus will descend. The trump will sound. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. He will call you by name. He will give you a new body and you will be sent into everlasting bliss with him. Grace upon grace. Saving grace. Present grace. Future grace. We cannot become grace-filled people. We cannot live grace-filled lives unless we constantly refresh the streams of our mind with the river of God's abounding grace to us. So friends, let me ask you, how's your practice of renewing your mind in the realities of the gospel? How often are you spending rehearsing these gracious truths? And let me bet, if you're feeling distant, from the Lord, if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling particularly tempted or lacking in joy, my guess is you probably haven't been renewing your mind very often. My guess is you probably have let the streams dry up and you start to forget who God is. Refresh your mind again. Renew your mind in these truths. So first, we need to review and renew and refresh but also, that is, that's step one. But step two is it needs to work its way out practically into the particulars of how we live and who we are. So point number two was a grace-filled mind. Point number three, a grace-filled life. Now, friends, I want to encourage you. This is a mark of our church. I think people visiting our church will experience a gracious and grace-filled people in our life groups, in our welcoming, in the way that people serve. This is already an evidence of grace amongst us. But I just want to spur us on to think of different ways in which we can grow in this area. 
We need to reorder our lives so that every part of our life is marked by grace. And I thought of three particular ways in which I wanted to encourage us as a church. Number one, I want us to be a people with grace-filled worship. You see, our worship in all aspects of our life, but especially and most probably evidently in our singing, should be marked visibly and characteristically by a sense of awe, joy, wonder, and a sense of, I can't believe this is true. On Christmas Day, when you give a kid the present that they didn't think they were going to get, but their hearts most wanted, their eyes, when they open the present, and they think, oh my goodness, it's X, Y, or Z, and they're yes, and they're thanking, and they're ripping it open. They don't even care you exist, because they're just like, this is the best present ever. That ought to be the sense in which we approach the Lord in our worship, in all of life, and particularly in our singing. In fact, immediately after the Lord passes by Moses and reveals his name, a Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger, verse 8 says this, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The response, the only kind of appropriate response to God's grace in our lives is worship. And not just, you know, mediocre, uh, somber worship, but glad, exuberant, joyful worship in proportion to the grace that has been given us. How great is our salvation, so great should our worship be. It should be easy for us to sing, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Or with David, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to, his song, to him with songs of praise. Gladness is the appropriate response to grace. Friends, never let it get f- familiar. When the gospel is preached, cheer, <laughs> When God's goodness is explained, amen it. When we sing of the death and resurrection of Christ, you're allowed to shout and chap and clear and dance because it's the best news we could ever hear. Now, we're all going to do that differently. We all have different personalities and, you know, like I'm more expressive. Doesn't mean I'm more godly because I yell or something like that. But as each one has been made in our own personalities, let us be glad in our hearts first and foremost. So a question to ask yourself, am I responding appropriately to the measure of grace I've received from the Lord? Does my gladness match the grace I've been shown? And if not, why not? A question to ask yourself. So as we review God and who he is, a gracious God, a grace-filled minds and grace-filled worship, now a grace-filled words. I want us to be a people with grace-filled words. You see, in response to God's grace, our words also ought to be gracious. A grace-filled people are people that are full of thankfulness and gratitude. If you study the Apostle Paul's letters, you'll notice that no one in all of Scripture speaks more of God's grace than the Apostle Paul, and no one mentions thanksgiving more than the Apostle Paul. 
in the letter to the Corinthians, he says this, and this church was a whacked out church. They were crazy. They were, they were like getting drunk at communion. So imagine we had communion and we all drank so much. It was real wine that we were plastered at the end of it. That's the Corinthian church. And this is what he says about them. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. When your mind is dominated by the grace of God in your life and in other people's lives, that's your instinctive thing that you see. And so therefore, the the instinctive words that you say reflect that grace. You see grace, so you thank God for it. You, You can't believe that God would be so gracious that you get to be in this church with these Christians. What a gift. What a gift that you get to know each other. That's kind of Paul's mentality. And so thankfulness ought to mark who we are because we never deserve to be served when we come to church. When you turn up to church and someone welcomes you, they're taking their time out to welcome you. When someone makes you a coffee, they made you a coffee. You don't deserve a coffee. (laughs) You know, like they made it for you out of their own time and effort. They they wanted to serve you. When their kids' workers are in there missing the service and, and they're serving your kids, you know, my kids, my annoying kids at times, I don't deserve that. And so we ought to be looking for so many ways in which we're aware, oh, I don't deserve any of the gifts that I have. So I'm going to thank all these people because, wow, this is amazing. Thank you for my coffee. Thank you for serving. Thank you for doing kids. Thank you, the band. Thank you, the projector. Oh, no projector. Thank you uh, uh, to the PA. Well, thank you. The projector person is actually putting together little um, handouts. So thank you to that person. Let's be uh, thanking our life group leaders. Thanks flows from gratitude, and gratitude is born out of grace. But not just our thankfulness and gratitude. If we're grace-filled people, we'll be full of active encouragement also. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may, may give grace to those who hear. People who are aware of God's grace in their life and aware of God's grace in other people's lives are constantly looking for ways to encourage people to see God's grace in their life. Because like I said before, we're so unaware of grace, we forget it, we don't see it in ourselves. And so we constantly as a church need to be encouraging one another, helping people to see that the joy that you have in this suffering, that's not natural. That's God at work in your life. You overcame that sin consistently. You you fought off temptation week after week. That's not you. That's God at work. I want to encourage you. I can see God at work in you. The way that you're serving so joyfully, I want to encourage you. That's God at work in you. We've got to find so many ways to encourage one another because it's an evidence of God's grace in us and evidences of God's grace in them. And even more so for those of us who are parents or married to do this at home it's easy sort of come to church and be really encouraging but when you're at home or you're at home living with your parents this ought to mark how we live in those private moments too often we can be the most nagging ungrateful critical people with our own families yet as we refresh our minds with grace we can return to our homes to our children to our spouses to our parents And look for grace. That was a great catch. Um, God's grace. Uh, We can look for ways to uh, demonstrate that graciousness in our speech to them. In fact, you could go home and ask the people who are closest to you and say, how am I going with my grace-filled words? Am I a thankful person? 
Am I an encouraging person at home? And if they've listened to this sermon, they'll look to find grace first and then find a way to break it to you that perhaps it's not the case. Now, it's not that we aren't discerning of sin and things like that in people's lives. But when we're refreshing our minds with grace, our instinctive thing that we're looking for, what we're looking for in other people is not where they're falling short. It's not where they're underperforming. It's where God is at work. And so we can celebrate any little bit of growth. The fact that anyone came to church today is amazing. <laughs> the fact that you came back after, last week after Shinu's preaching, that's amazing. <laughs> Jakes. It was a really good message, but that was, all right. Grace-filled attitude, final one. Down to not just our, how we worship, not just how we speak, but our very demeanor as a human being, as a follower of Christ. Grace ought to permeate our personality, who we are, how people experience our body language and our, our, our facial expressions even. Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. His intrinsic heart and nature is to be meek, kind and gentle and lowly. The Apostle Paul, when speaking of his ministry to the Thessalonians, said, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Knowing of the grace we've received, knowing of the love we've been shown, knowing the patience of God to us, we ought to have the exact same attitude toward others. Our, our very temperament is marked by grace even when they're sinning against us, even when they're annoying, even when they're unlovely. Because that is how God treats us when we are annoying, when we are deliberately sinful, when we are unlovely. He doesn't recoil from us, but instead leans in and calls us back to himself to show us more love and more grace and more sympathy and more tenderness and more compassion. We are to be grace-filled in our very attitude and demeanor. Very challenging. Who do you see God as? And what type of person do you want to be what type of church do you want to be a part of? As we review who God is, that he is gracious. It ought to overflow within us by refreshing our minds and intentionally remolding our lives that we would become grace-filled people in our worship, in our words, in our very attitude and demeanor. Thankful. Grateful, gentle, kind, patient, confident. And may it be that as we pursue and refresh our minds, that this would be who we are and always who we are as a church. A grace-filled, joyful, loving church. We are to be a grace-filled people because we are children of a gracious God. Be imitators of him, friends.
Let's pray. Lord God, I'm so aware of my failure in this area. How quickly I can become cynical, critical, demeaning, demanding, frustrated, impatient, annoying, and annoyed. Quick to correct, slow to encourage. Quick to assume, slow to give thanks. Quick to demand and slow to serve. Lord, I pray and ask that you would do a work in my life and our life as members of this church. That you would continue to fan into flame images of who you are truly as a gracious and loving God. And that as a result, as our minds are renewed and refreshed with your saving grace and your sustaining grace and your empowering grace and your forgiving grace and your future grace, that we in turn would become grace-filled people. May your grace and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, be amongst us. For his glory we pray. Amen.